Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy class on the Dispossessed. This is class number four. <clears throat> After tonight, we will be halfway through our discussion of the Dispossessed, uh, which which means we are getting closer to needing our next book. So uh, you'll recall we were going to do um we're going to do one more. Of course, we uh, all right. You probably know, as I've told you several times before, but in case you're new, I'll say it again. Uh, everybody who donates to the Mythgard uh, 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 Fund, to the, you know, the Signum University Fund, um, which supports all of our Mythgard uh, programs, including the Mythgard Academy, everybody who donates gets voting privileges, of course, on the books that we do next. If you're new to this and you're wondering how I've chosen these books, I haven't chosen these books. Uh, the books that we're doing have been chosen by our electorate. Everyone who donates $100 or more gets a seat if they if they like it uh, on the Council of the Wise, which gets to discuss and nominate the final slate of books that the voters choose among. And then all of the voters elect the next book uh, that we do. Yana, I don't have any influence. I, I, I have no say. I don't contribute to the discussions. I don't even read this. I actually try to stay out of the discussions, lest I be tempted to sort of jump in and uh, and argue one way or another. I don't even look. I don't even I try not to even go to the discussions of the Council of the wise i wait and when the uh when the final slate comes out of it i'm i'm surprised you're right yana i do retain a veto um i i've never used it never been tempted to use it uh it's never it's never come close uh there are some books which i would find very very difficult to dig into um and which i would be tempted to use my veto for but there are very few of them and we've never gone there so it's all good um and um and no, no, uh, you know, for the, the the running joke, people always joke about Twilight. No, no, I wouldn't, uh, uh, I wouldn't veto Twilight. I dare you. I dare you. We wouldn't spend too long on it. Uh, but I, I dare you to nominate Twilight. We totally talk about it. Anyway, um, okay, so, um, I couldn't promise to keep a straight face while reading the passages off the screen if we did Twilight. I mean, the prose is kind of funny, but hey, but we did we we totally talk about it. Um, and I've I've read it before, Nancy. I read it all the I went read it from one end to the next. Um, uh, I Twilight was yeah. I I made a point of it. Would I do voices? Oh, Karina, you better believe I would do voices. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I would absolutely do appropriate Twilight voice. Now here I'm daring you to do Twilight. I'm not wanting to do that. I'm just saying I would. Um, anyway, there are lots of cool things. Um, it's true that many of the books that have been elected happen to be uh, like on the short list of my favorite books ever, but that's not my fault. I don't choose them. I have no influence. It's just people just, I don't, you know, I, I think... I think the problem is that the Mythgard Academy just attracts a bunch of people who think a lot like me, apparently. <laughs> so, but it's, yeah, Nancy, you're right. It's not coincidence, but it's not exactly causality either, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, anyhow, so, okay, okay, okay. So, uh, the, we always change over the electorate. We're in the middle of our fundraising campaign right now. And the fundraising campaign is not the beginning of our fiscal year, which actually begins in July. Um, but it's sort of the, you know, the, the moment when we're really focusing on, uh, you know, raising our raising the money that we need to, you know, for Signum to, to continue and to uh, to move its programs forward th through the next year. Um, we've been uh, doing just wonderfully so far. Uh, we've already raised. We're now in the fourth week. Of the uh, of the fundraising campaign, and we have already raised, or is it the fifth week? I can't remember. It's all a blur. Um, but we've raised uh, almost twenty five thousand dollars now. We're we're about twenty four thousand five hundred dollars, which is just awesome. Um, so that's been um, 
uh, that's been that's been just wonderful. If you haven't had a chance to donate yet, I encourage you to do so. We're also going to have, as has been traditional for the last few years, our big um, our big end of campaign webathon, um, which is going to be happening in that last weekend of October, and uh, it's going to be a long. We're going to do uh, like. I've got, we've got about 10 hours of programming planned. We're going to do a whole bunches of free giveaways and stuff like that. And that's, you know, I encourage you to, I encourage you to be involved in that anyway. Anyway. Okay. Point is after the campaign is over is when we sort of turn over the, the ranks of the council of the wise and start sort of a new, uh, Mythgard Academy electing year. Okay. But the thing is, as you know, so you've probably gotten this explanation before, um, we're going to finish with the dispossessed in the beginning of November, like the first week or two of November, and it's, it's way too soon to start the next cycle already. We won't be able to get the voting and stuff up. So things are already moving to vote for one more book. So we're going to have one more book in this cycle. Um, no idea what it could possibly be. I, it, the thing, it's just a, it's, it's a blank page to me. It really is. Um, again, for those of you who are new, this is an inside joke too. One of the rules that we have in the Mythgard Academy is that we don't do two books by the same author in a row, um, which means we only do Tolkien every other book in the Mythgard Academy instead of every book. So, um, uh, which has been great, by the way. That's been an awesome rule because it has, I have, of course, I have really loved uh, the Tolkien examination that we've been doing. The, the, um, the Our trip through the History of Middle-Earth series has been like literally life-changing for me. I have learned so much through our trip through the History of Middle-Earth. It's been great. Um, but of course, what a wonderful opportunity to discover new things and to, uh, and to, to engage new interests that we've had, uh, in the middle. Um, not only because it's, you know, gotten the chance to talk about some of my favorite books in the world, like Dune and Watership Down. Um, but, uh, but we've also gotten to, I've gotten to discover new, I'd never read The Dispossessed before, and this is really fascinating. I've, um, um, I've gotten to, I got to, to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh my goodness. Uh, that was, I'd never read that before. And, uh, and that was really neat. So, um, anyway, yeah. And the Dracula class, Yana, that was, that was, that was so much fun. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, well, Neil, we couldn't do Left Hand of Darkness for the next book, for the book that we begin in November, but Ursula Le Guin would be back on the table again, uh, after the following book. Right. So, um, uh, Anyway, anyway, um, now Karita asks an interesting question. When we run out of Tolkien material, will we redo books? Um, maybe, you know, I could see us redoing books. I mean, because you're right. I mean, by it's already been, what, three years now since I did The Lord of the Rings? And, you know, by the time we get to the end, I mean, if we do carry on through the History of Middle-Earth series, and get, you know, I mean, it could well be five, six years since we did The Lord of the Rings. It would be interesting. It's not like, you know, there's any sort of shortage of material to talk about there. So I, that would be an interesting proposition, actually. It would be it would be something I'd be willing to consider. Um, though I, you know, I wouldn't want to just kind of get in the same routine. Okay, actually, I kind of would. Um, that is, that's totally how my mind goes. I mean, like, I totally have a set like group of, um, um, a, a, you know, a readings that I do throughout the year, every year. So, so yeah, though, that's totally how I would, how I would do it. But, uh, anyway, anyway, you're right. Noam. technically we are still missing the Hobbit. It's true. We never actually did a Mythgard Academy class on the Hobbit. Um, yeah, 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 no, no, very doable. Very, uh, very, very open, very open for election. 
Anyway, okay, all right. Sorry, I'm getting all distracted here. Whereas I'm trying to follow... This is the face I make when I'm trying to follow the tangled skein of my thought through the labyrinth of my sidetracks and regain my original course. Um, I think it started from merely the notion that we were halfway through the dispossessed and that we're going to be electing so that you should be in the next few weeks expecting uh, updates and action points, uh, electing action points on the next book. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's where I was originally uh, going with that. But um, uh, by the way, another side note, since I'm already digressing horribly or at least extensively, um, uh, the the uh, in the webathon that I'm doing at the end, I just I, I decided I'm going to do a special. I, I want to do a trivia contest, but I'm going to do a Mythgard Academy themed trivia contest. So I'm going to do I'm going to do trivia questions from the books that we've covered in the Mythgard Academy over the last two or three years. Okay, uh, so uh, uh, so that'll be that'll be particular. So we'll have not only Tolkien trivia, but Jonathan Strange trivia and Watership Down trivia, and uh, uh, it, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So we'll uh, uh, we will have a we'll have a big trivia contest with uh, with prizes and everything um, in the uh, in the webathon. So, um, okay. Other announcements I wanted to make. No, I mean, I wanted to, I mean, of course, there are other things going on. You can, you know, I encourage you to check our website. We have several other uh, special events that are coming up. For instance, tomorrow, uh, I'm having a session tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern time where I'm talking to one of the, uh, one of the creative guys down at Turbine, the company who puts out the Lord of the Rings online video game. Um, he's one of the two chief uh, Tolkien lore guys uh, who works for Turbine. Um, and he is the one who has constructed most of the storylines in the game. Um, so he's been one of the ones who is, um, you know, there's 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 another guy, Chris Pearson, whom we've had some interactions with. Many of you will remember when he was our guest at Mythmoot uh, for Mythmoot Two, I think that was. Was that two or three? No, it was three. It was Mythmoot Three that he came to, um, and he's sort of the primary world builder who who sort of plans and 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 gives sort of the big picture. Um, uh, 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 the the this guy whose screen name is Made of Lions. It's how everybody knows him. Um, he's um, uh, Jeffrey, of course, is his real name. He's he's. Um, going to be talking he's the one who builds the stories uh, and who is so he's done a lot of the work in adapting the storyline for the game which has a relationship with the the storyline of the main book which i think is more innovative and interesting uh, than almost any video game based on a book i've ever played instead of just kind of going through and like i am being frodo doing the things that he does in the movie usually but sometimes in the book um uh, he's developed this whole story that's sort of parallel and around uh, uh, and sort of on the outskirts of and like just off stage from uh, the story of the book. It's really cool and really interesting. Um, but uh, anyway, so I'm going to be talking to him about adapting Tolkien, particularly, of course, in the Lord of the Rings online game context. Um, and that's going to be 4 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. Um, Again, you can go to, if you go to the signumuniversity.org website, the donate uh, uh, menu at the far end, and you'll be able to see the page for the campaign, which has all of our events listed, uh, and you can see the, uh, uh, the links for that, uh, the, 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 the registration link for that session. Anyway, so that's coming up tomorrow. But the main thing I, want you to be, I, I wanted to, to kind of put on your radar screen is the webathon. Um, we're going to do... 
whole bunches of things uh, in the webathon, um, but there are a couple specifically uh, Mythgard Academy related things that we're going to be doing uh, in the webathon. One I already mentioned, my Mythgard Ac- uh, Academy trivia uh, contest. But the other thing is we're going to do another one-shot special Mythgard Academy session, just like we did with Nightfall a couple weeks ago. We're going to do another one uh, in the webathon, and this one is going to be on the new Netflix series Stranger Things, which I am still in the middle of watching, so don't spoil the end of it for me. I've only watched six episodes so far because uh, uh, my my wife has been watching it with me, so I'm, I'm restricting myself and only watching it in times when she and I can watch it together, which is like once a week. So... Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite to the end yet, um, but it's going to be, it's, I've been, I've been, I've been loving it so far. Um, I find, uh, well, I find for one thing that I am, I'm old enough now that any, any show that takes place in the time of my childhood, I am almost exactly the same age as the kid who disappears. Um, uh, I, I think I would have been, uh, yeah, within a year or two of his age at the time that the that the show was was happening, so it's like exactly the time of my childhood. And um, uh, anyway, it's really it's really it's really cool. So, um, so we're gonna talk about that now. On the one hand, I feel kind of bad because it's an eight episode show. So you guys know me well enough to know, like, there's no way, there is no way I'm going to be able to do my like traditional close reading thing in one shot, right? You know, to be able to do one episode uh, on Stranger Things, um, I would totally need at least eight weeks, probably nine or ten to be safe uh, to really go through that show in detail uh, and talk about it um, sort of... Episode by episode, with lots with lots of uh, video clips and stuff, the way that I I prefer to do these kinds of things. Um, so what? But that was nominated. I called um, among the among the council of the wise. We called for nominations for a couple one shots. The first one was Nightfall that was nominated there, um, and uh, and another person nominated Stranger Things, which I thought was a was a I'd never seen it before until it was nominated. Then I started watching it, and uh, I thought it was a brilliant idea. Um, so I, I wanted to do it despite the fact that it's not going to be in that way kind of a normal class. Um, so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to be doing sort of a, a broader overview discussion. And, uh, and to, I'm going to have somebody who's going to help kind of keep me on task with that. So I'm going to have it's not going to be just me. Um, one of the other uh, uh, wonderful members of the Signum faculty, Brenton Dickinson, is going to join me. And he and I are going to have a, a discussion together uh, about Stranger Things and, and, and sort of a, a larger overview, which would mean, by the way, that it would still be eligible for nomination uh, for a more in-depth look uh, as a regular uh, as a regular uh, 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 class. So that'd be cool. Um Anyway, so that'll be that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking for so we're going to have that. We're going to have the trivia contest. We're going to have um, uh, a special session with the uh, uh, the the Silmarillion Film Project script writing team. We're going to have a special lecture given by one of the Signum faculty on the subject of Tolkien and alchemy uh, by Dr. Sarah Brown. Um, we're going to have a thesis chat. Um, uh, one of the Signum students who just completed who recently completed her master's thesis and is now studying uh, for her PhD with Dr. Dimitra Fimi uh, over in Cardiff. Um, she's going to be talking about her thesis project, uh, which is on uh, on Tolkien's poem. Uh, well, on the the last the the sea bell rather. Um, from the Adventures of Tom Bombadil and the earlier version of that poem, Looney, and looking at so it's such a fascinating poem. 
and she's really interested in in the sort of the 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 fairy and fairy tale motifs in that poem. Just some really really brilliant work with that. Um, so she's going to talk about the work that she did in her in in her thesis. I'm going to do a special interview with. Um, this is going to be awesome. Um, I'm going to be, do a special Silmarillion Q and A with two very young Tolkien fans who are full of questions about the Silmarillion. Um, I had a conversation with them before. Um, uh, they are um, ten and eight, and full of Silmarillion questions. Um, just to, to, to give you a sample, I had a conversation with this girl on a sidewalk, right? She's 10. And her question was, um, yeah, Yana, no, wait, wait, Yana, it's not just that, right? It's not just that she's read the Silmarillion, right? She's like, I have some questions about the Silmarillion. And I'm like, really? Okay, what's your questions? And she says, in the Book of Lost Tales, it says that Gothmog is the son of Morgoth. What's up with that? And I was like, are you serious right now? <laughs> So, so I'm like, wait, wait, we need to have this conversation at a time when we can record this and share this with everybody else because dang. Uh, so anyway, so I'm going to, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to have a, a fun Silmarillion Q and a, uh, with the awesome Swerda sisters, which is going to be great. And, uh, and oh, Yana, I'm quite sure that she didn't pull that off the Internet or something. She was uh, uh, she had awesome questions. Um, she was hilarious, actually. Um, she she, uh, she I was she was she, she was in a camp that I was speaking at and she kind of cornered me, you know, which was totally legitimate later on. And and she was wearing a cloak. And so she had her she had her she had her she had her hands. She had her hands under her cloak and she comes over to me and and. And and I said, hi, I, I understood you had some questions for me. And she said, yes. And she whips out this sheaf of papers from underneath her cloak and starts going through the list. And I was like, wow, all right. Okay. This is this is this is serious business right here. So anyway, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have a, a discussion with them. It's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. So lots of really cool things happening. I think there's probably something else that I'm forgetting about. Oh yeah, we're doing a uh, we're going to do a, a special Lotro session um, with uh, some of the uh, some of the people from our from our kinship and friends on the Lord of the Rings online, um, which is going to be a lot of fun. So anyway, it's going to be uh, it, it's going to be a great day. Again, that's in that it's in that last weekend. You notice I'm kind of hedging about that. The on the website it's scheduled for the Sunday the 30th, and that has been the original plan. I'm actually thinking of shifting it to the 29th. I've had, been working out final scheduling issues with some of our participants. I think it's going to end up being on Saturday the 29th. So you can kind of pencil that in. We'll confirm that um, in uh, in the next couple of days. I hope it's almost almost confirmed now but uh uh but but anyway so you can pencil it in for saturday the 29th my problem was it was getting i had so much stuff and so many participants that um it it was starting to get too long to start later in the day on sunday so we're gonna kick it back to saturday instead all right i have an idea let's talk about the dispossessed what do you say right let's do that okay um so tonight session four we're gonna carry on um we're going to carry on going through the uh, uh, the the passages from the end of last time, and then uh, some more that I had. Um, I got a couple really good questions uh, and suggested topics by email. Um, I'll see if we can get to those. Um, we have, uh, as, as always with this book, so much to talk about. Um, but uh, let's let's see how we do. So you remember at the end of last time we were talking about Shevik's isolation, 
right? Remember about how he was put in a single room, which felt so weird to him, right? And one of the things that we were talking about was about sort of his being separate from other people, separate as a physicist, right? His his calling, his job, you know, the work that he was doing. And remember the significance of the word work in, in the Pravic language, right? The, there's the same word for work and play, right? It's the sort of the thing that you do, right? Um, and it, one of the things, of course, that seems to me to be really implied in the linguistic emphasis that's placed on work in Pravic is that it's much more tied intrinsically in you know in the Pravic language and therefore presumably in the in the NRSD mindset it's much it's much more tied with your identity I would say right um, that is to say there's not this sense which is so common of course in our modern world it's uh, the 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 sense of like, right, there's me and who I'm interested in. Then I, I go and I punch the clock, right? And I do this job, but the job isn't really me, right? My life and who I am and what I do and what I love is the stuff I do when I get home from work, right? And on the weekends and on vacations and things like that. And then I just go in and I, I, uh, I, I, I punch the clock and, you know, put in my time. That's a, a very common, you know, modern uh, uh, viewpoint, certainly in America, um, but it, that's clearly antithetical to how the NRSD culture deals with with work, right? But again, the implication here is that it's not just that Shevik has chosen to go into a field to, to do a kind of work that isolates him from other people, right? It's not really about his choice. This is what he's good at. And remember, when he meets Badap, uh, or meets him again, right, as, a, as an adult, and... Um, He's talking about leaving physics and just asking for a different posting and going off into something. He thinks he's burned himself out, right, at the age of 20, he's, you know, which, as he says, is common, um, which, um, uh, which is actually true, really. Um, I, remember, uh, um, I remember once having a strange conversation with a friend in college who was a math major who was lamenting. He was 21. And he was lamenting it was too late for him already. He was like almost every great mathematical discovery has been made by somebody like by the age of 20 or younger. And I'm like, seriously? Whoa. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of grim. But anyway, um, uh, it, it's, it is quite common. You know, it's, you know he's, this, is, this, this is what he's worried about. Um, but again, it's, this is something that is that is intrinsic to him, right? He can't, as, as Badat points out, like he can't, you know, the idea that Shevik is going to just leave physics, right? And do something else, you know, go into manual labor or something like that is absurd. He is, he is a physicist. He is a star in physics. Um, Badat doesn't have to understand physics to know that physics is what Shevik should be doing. Um, and yet that identity, that very identity is isolating him. Right. Um, and, so there seems to be one of the one of the things I would suggest that seems to be going on with Shevik there is trying to understand like, is this me right? Um, how how avoidable is it possible to avoid this isolation? Um, and I want to think about some of the different ways in which he's isolated. We see him being socially isolated because of the work that he does. We see him being isolated in the sense that nobody can understand him. Remember, he's got to try to communicate. You know, the only... He thrives on the contact with the other physicists, right? But 
the only other physicists who can understand him. Um, there was Gavarib, but she died. Um, and now the only other physicist that he can talk to, that he can, that really can stimulate his own thinking, are 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 on Urus, right? And Sabal has a stranglehold on the channel of communication between him and them. So um, he's isolated by the fact that what he's doing is so esoteric that nobody else on the planet, literally, uh, can really understand or even judge the work that he does, right? So, okay. Um, but as I said, I want to look at some other ways. Um, as we see this issue of Shevik's isolation coming up in different chapters, that is to say in different sort of phases uh, of his life, right? Um, but, uh, and, and to see the ways in which that isolation is sort of articulated. Okay. Um, he had come to love Urus, but what good was his yearning love? He was not of it, nor was he part of it, nor was he part of the world of his birth. The loneliness, the certainty of isolation that he had felt in his first hour aboard the Mindful rose up in him and asserted itself as his true condition, ignored, suppressed, but absolute. He was alone here because he came from a self-exiled society. He had always been alone on his own world because he had exiled himself from his society. The settlers had taken one step away. He had taken two. He stood by himself because he had taken the metaphysical risk, and he had been fool enough to think that he might serve to bring together two worlds to which he did not belong. As usual, this is a passage we could spend the entire class talking about. Um, tell me some things that you notice here. What do we learn about Shevik's, about sort of the, 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 the quality of Shevik's isolation and how he thinks of it? What do we... What do we see from that there? We see, of course, her pointing to a fundamental irony involved in his the isolation that he feels, right? Both in sort of the combination of the isolation that he perceives uh, himself to be in and the sort of task that he set or the thing that he's doing. What do you notice about this? <laughs> yeah, Carita says I've been lonely before, but sheesh. Yeah, yeah. Um, his isolation is complete, right? He's not. He's isolated, of course, because he's the only Anaresti in this society of Urasti, right? He is a stranger, an alien, right? Um, but he's also a stranger on his own world as well. Um, good. Cynthia is pointing out the irony of the fact that he went to Urus in part in order to be to be connected with you know to to be involved in those conversations with his peers. Right? You 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 remember Cynthia, the narrator, emphasizing that. All right, I was the first time ever in his life um, that he was sitting there and having a conversation with his peer. Could just talk about physics with people who understood all the things that he was talking about. Um, so there's a we, you know we see him. You know, right away, not in the not in chapter one, but in chapter three, right? That first full chapter that takes place on on Urus, we see him appearing to be finding a community, right? Um, so why is he isolated? He's got peers, right? Why is he? What isolates him from them exactly? 
Yeah. Carita uh, and James Stevens are both emphasizing that 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 um, both of them are, are 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 fixing on this one that one phrase that isolation was his true condition. Um, and yes, that is uh, loneliness and isolation are his true condition. That is very sobering, indeed. It certainly is um, very grim. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. As Michael uh, says, the, the 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 whole culture, the whole—or I mean, yes—they're his intellectual peers, but their whole culture um, cuts him off from them, right? And we've also seen many—you know—we've we, talked before about examples of of times when the, they're they're talking and they're just not understanding each other, right? They may be intellectual peers; they may be able to talk about physics, but besides physics, what else do they have in common, right? What else? How else are they able? to connect um, the things that they take for granted on Urus are kind of appalling to him right even things as simple as the the his revulsion and, and shock at his shopping expedition right the nightmare street with all the stores um, yeah yeah um, yeah yeah good Michael that's that's right he may speak Yotic but he doesn't really speak their language you're right um yeah, it's um, and and that's of course you know Michael, you're right to 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 focus on that, right? There's a lot of emphasis on that, you know, the fact that he speaks Iotic, right? That that he learns to read at least Iotic, right? Um, so there is that connection, and yet that connection really sort of serves to emphasize how little connection there is. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good, good, um. Look at how about though, what is he suggesting about his isolation from Anaris? Do you see what this implies about that? Now, this is where another one of those places where the structure of the book becomes so important, right? We've begun to see by the end of chapter six, we have begun to see this trajectory of his disaffection with. Anaris, right? His relationship with Anaris becomes more and more troubled as time goes on. But of course, from chapter one on, all of the chapters in Urus are all chronologically later than the last of the Anarasti chapters, right? So we are seeing, when we hear from him here in the Urus chapters, we're hearing something which is the end point of the progression that we've only seen the start of, right? In the Anaris chapters. Um, so in a sense, we can't fully answer what he means by it, right? Because we haven't really seen its full development yet. It's more like foreshadowing than anything else. But we can learn some things. Look at what he says. Okay. Um, first, notice the parallel that he establishes between himself and Anaris, right? So we have... Um, he calls his society, he calls the Anaresti society a self-exiled society, okay? They have not gone apart. They've not just withdrawn themselves from... Remember, there's, uh, uh, there's this, you know, like they've quarantined the rest of the world with a little wall, right, and withdrawn themselves. Um, they've not gone into retreat. He characterizes them as exiled. 
self-exiled. They have condemned themselves to exile, which is already a fascinating characterization of his society and very different from Kuiroi, very different from what he would have said, say, in chapter 3, like in his early teenage years in that argument that he had with Tyrion, right? He would have spoken very differently. He did speak very differently uh, about Anaris in that context. Um, but okay, he had always been alone on his own world because he had exiled himself from his society. So using the same word, right, he suggests a parallel. Just as Anaris exiled itself from Urus, so he has exiled himself from Anaris. So he's suggesting a likeness, right, between those, at least, at least in analogy, between those two relationships. So Anaris left Urus in revolution, right? In protest, desiring to, what? Free itself from the shackles of a society whose values it wanted to throw off, right? In order to establish a new and better way, right, the, to, to establish the Odonian society? Is that his relationship with Anaris? Is that one of the things that's kind of at stake in this trip, to, in his departure from Anaris and his return to Urus, right? If so, that's kind of interesting, right? Um, and the other thing, of course, is he says, uh, you know, so the settlers had taken one step away, he had taken two steps away, but again, we can already see paradox here. What is his second step away? What is his second step away? Yes, Nancy. His second step away is going back to Urus, right? Um, it's a step back. Or is it a step forward? Or is it both at the same time, right? Remember that. That's going to be important, more important, the closer we get towards the end of the book. Two steps away equals one step away and one step back. It's the same thing. Um, and he talks about taking good, Rachel, that's just what I was going to talk about, taking a, a metaphysical risk. What is the metaphysical risk, Rachel? I don't know. I don't know. It's not obvious, right? At least not obvious to me. Right, at least not at this point in the book. I mean, I might be able to kind of make a guess putting together all the stuff through the book, but at this point on page eighty-nine, I don't really know fully what the metaphysical risk is exactly. I mean, we already have a sense from chapter one, right? Remember, there's the wall at the beginning of chapter one, and he crosses the wall, and people are chucking rocks at him, right, for crossing the wall. Um, so we already see him taking a risk, right? We see him transgressing a boundary. We see him doing something which obviously his society or many other people in his society don't approve of. Um, so the risk thing, we have some ways to understand that, right? Um, but in what sense is it a metaphysical risk, exactly? I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Sarah Lagarde says the 175 years of time difference between the step away and the step back struck her, especially when Shevik sits down by the statue of Odo. You know what, Sarah? That struck me too. Shevik looked at Odo for a while, and then he sat down on the bench beside her. He had no concept of status at all, and there was plenty of room on the bench. 
He was moved by a pure impulse of companionship. He looked at the strong, sad profile. Sorry, he looked at the strong, sad profile and at the hands, an old woman's hands. He looked up into the shadowy branches. For the first time in his life, he comprehended that Odo, whose face had known whose face he had known since his infancy, whose ideas were central and abiding in his mind, in the mind of everyone he knew, that Odo had never set foot on Anaris, that she had lived and died and was buried in the shadow of green-leaved trees in unimaginable cities, among people speaking unknown languages on another world. Odo was an alien, an exile. The young man sat beside the statue in the twilight, one almost as quiet as the other. This is a really powerful scene, right? I mean, on the one hand, of course, one of the first things that gets sort of established in our mind's eye here is this image of Shevik and Odo sitting on a bench together, right? The two of them being peers. That's the emphasis there at the beginning, right? He had no concept of status at all. Like it, it, he doesn't think anything of just sort of sitting down next to Odo and hanging out with her. He wouldn't like be like, oh no, Odo should be up on the pedestal and I should kneel before her or something like that. That's not how the NRST think, right? Um, and I love the, the observation. There was plenty of room on the bench, right? That's how the NRST think, right? So, so there's no reverence in that sense for Odo per se, um, but more importantly, you know, here is Le Guin giving us the two of them, Shevik and Odo, sitting on a bench and therefore at least inviting us to kind of think about the two of them together, especially since we have already seen um, where, he, where he comes in his thinking by the end of this passage, Odo was an alien, an exile, right? Now, he hasn't had the experience of being an alien and exile in Urus yet, right? But we already have the experience of seeing him there, right? In chapter three, because this is chapter four. So it's chronologically earlier in Chevik's life, but it's afterwards in our readerly experience. And so therefore, when we see him sit down next to Odo, we already have a context for it. Like Odo, he is going to be a pioneer, right? He is going to, to do a new thing. He is going to start a new revolution, Right? At least that seems to be his intention. I mean, he even seems to have alluded to it uh, back in the previous... Uh, you, know, the, you know, he stood by himself because he had taken the metaphysical risk. Uh, he had been fool enough to think that he might serve to bring together two worlds to which he did not belong. So he has this ambition of bringing the two worlds together, right? He, he sees himself as a pioneer, right? He sees himself as sort of daring to cross this boundary and to accomplish something by crossing that boundary. So he's like Odo. Right? Like Odo in reverse. Right? Not separating from the societies, but bringing the two societies down together. Odo's brave deed, right? Odo's revolution was to take and to separate away from the Urosti culture and to sort of, you know, lay the foundation for a completely new society that would be, that would, that would sever itself culturally, geographically, from the Urasti culture, Shevik is doing the opposite, right? He is crossing, recrossing that, taking the next step, which is the step back and bringing them together, right? So Shevik is like Odo. Um, and when he sees her, he realizes that 
she's an alien. She is not an arrestee, right? And remember, um, remember the conversation. And yes, um, uh, you guys were, were, um, somebody was referring to it before the conversation that they were having. Yes. Rachel was talking about, um, the, the conversation with Tyrion in the second chapter where he talks about how one can't leave Anaris because they are Anaris, right? Anaris is them and they are Anaris, right? Um, notice how that concept seems to be shaken here, right? He doesn't think that way anymore. He realized that Odo, he realized, when he realizes here that Odo herself was not Anaris, right? Was not Anaresti. Um, how can he say, I am Anaris and Anaris is me, right? If, again, if, if Odo herself is, um, um, yeah, great, yeah. Um, uh, Sarah Lagarde is strengthening the parallel. Odo in the statue is reviewing the ideas in her paper. She's got her papers open on her lap. Right, heard the statue does. Um, so is Shevik reviewing the ideas in his papers. Hers are social science philosophy. His is physics uh, philosophy. Right, um, but Sarah, there are even parallels there. Um, yes, yes, good. Lance Crimmins says uh, uh, that she Odo is the only real peer um, that we see Shevik with. Yes, Ananaris. Yeah, yeah, in a sense. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, Kay says, all throughout the book, I have a strong, pure impulse of companionship towards Shevik. His idea of the wall, before which no brother may truly accompany another, is heartbreaking. It is, Kay. Um, this longing for brotherhood, for true brotherhood, and yet his failure ever really to find that connection. We do. See, there's that one exception, right? Um, his partnership with Takfair, and we'll come to that a little bit later on, which seems to be rewarding, which does, I mean, Takfair does, is a real partner to him, right? Is a real peer to him. Um, not a peer in the same, she's not a physicist like he is, right? They don't, they don't talk physics together, um, but they clearly are peers. They clearly are, they're brothers and partners in a deeper way. So it's not like he's always totally lonely, right? Um, but the, there's still a wall, right? Um, and at the end of the day, he does leave Takfair and go to Urus without her, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Karita asks a great question. Would Shevik be the undoer of Odo's work or a finisher of it? Well, Karita depends on whom, whom you ask, right? Clearly, the rock-throwing Anaresti think that he would be the undoer of Odo's work, right? He's selling out to the to the proprietarians going back to Urus. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he is. Maybe that's a legitimate way to to look at it. Um, but that seems to be exactly exactly the question. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Sarah, I didn't quote that passage, but you're right. That's such a wonderful moment. Sarah Lagarde is reminding me of that moment when he uses that. We, we learn the Pravic word for brother, Amar. Right. And he uses the word Amar when he's looking at the otter. Right. That first time that he's sitting there looking into the eyes of an animal because they don't have animals uh, on Anaris. And he reaches he feels this, you know, upsurge of brotherhood for the otter and calls him brother. That's a it's, it's a wonderful passage. Um, uh, 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 and also I want to pet otter. Um, 
but uh, anyway, uh, it's it's yeah. I I I was that was on my my list of passages I didn't get to, uh, Sarah. But but I'm glad you brought it up. Um, well, let's keep going and see how this works out. Let's talk about his meeting with his mom. Speaking of painful things. So he's just had his fever. And remember, his fever comes upon him immediately after the confrontation with Sambal, when with the, the whole academic freedom conversation that he has with Sambal, um, which disgusts him both about Sambal and even about himself. And he has this fever, right? So it, it immediately brings on, you know, it's it's like something is rotten in the state of Denmark and it's, you know, something is rotten in the state of Anaris and it's, you know, he's, he's confronted with the fact that his society doesn't actually seem to work. We talked about this last time, right? Those, all those accusations that Tyrion was making, which, um, uh, which young Shevik so violently opposed kind of seem to be confirmed, right? By what he observes from Sabal and having seen that there seems to be this sickness underlying the Odonian society in which he had throughout his life believed so strongly he himself falls ill, right? Um, notice how Shevik, on the one hand, he's an outcast, right? He's isolated from everyone in his society, but he's like Odo, the cornerstone of the society. There's all There are also senses in which he is like a, a, a stand-in, like a representative of the entire society, right? What this society could be. And this is one of those moments that really strikes me that way, right? Again, like where the juxtaposition between his perception of this kind of corruption or disease, just sort of ethical, mental disease of his society, um, and then his immediate fever, right? You know, how his own body is sort of uh, uh, racked with this uh, similar, comparable kind of illness. Anyway, okay. He's, well, after, this is after he's finally lucid again. Uh, how do you feel? Newborn, who are you? She also smiled. The mother. So we have this immediate irony, right? I feel like I've just been born. Who are you? Oh, I'm your mom, right? Uh, finally reunited with you. It's, you know, so, okay, right? All right, I'm tracking here. Rebirth. But I'm supposed to get a new body, not the same old one, right? Um, I can't help but think that this is a gentle play on John chapter 3. If you know the New Testament at all, this is the uh, this is John 3.16, the most famous verse in the New Testament. But it's in the context of that conversation where... Jesus tells the Pharisee Nicodemus that um, if he would be saved, he must be born again. And Nicodemus's first response is like, what the heck are you talking about, right? How, how can I, being old, like, shall I enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born, right? That doesn't make any sense. What do you mean I should be born again? Um, and uh, th- there seems to be kind of a gentle play on the same thing, right? You know, it's, it, she, she, the, this woman that he doesn't know says, how do you feel? He says, I feel newborn. And she's like, I'm your mom. And he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, rebirth, right? I like I just got a new body, not the same old. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not being born a second time, right? Um, what on earth are you talking about? She asks. Nothing on earth. On Urus, rebirth is a part of their religion. You're still lightheaded. She touched his forehead. No fever. 
Her voice, in saying those two words, touched and struck something very deep in Shevik's being, a dark place, a place walled in. <laughs> it's one of those books, whenever, like, there are a bunch of key concepts, which, whenever they come up, they should, like, the flag should go up, right? Whenever anything is compared to a wall, we should be paying attention, right? A dark place, a place walled in, where it reverberated back and back in the darkness. He looked at the woman and said with terror, You are Rulag. I told you I was, several times. She maintained an expression of unconcern, even of humor. There was no question of Shevik's maintaining anything. He had no strength to move, but he shrank away from her in unconcealed fear, as if she were not his mother, but his death. How do we understand this? What's going on here? Yeah, Rachel, I agree that the religion on Urus is... I think the word, Rachel, I would use is reminiscent of Christianity, at the least. It's not explicitly Christian, but it's at least sort of Christian-esque. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Jennifer, I agree with you. It is. It seems very strange to me, too, that his reaction to meeting his mother is terror. We know that he feels anger towards his mom, right? He feels that his mom abandoned him and his dad, right? Um, why does he feel terror? What's terrifying about his mom? This is hard. I'm, uh, jumping straight into a bunch of really hard passages here tonight. I know a lot of you are sitting there being like, well, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> that are you're typing huge amounts, which don't do. Don't, don't type in huge amounts. Try to keep your comments short because it's, it's always, it's already hard for me to keep up with them. And when somebody puts in like a block comment like this, I'm like, I read really slowly. I'm like, I can't possibly parse all that. Um, yeah. Rachel, uh, points out that there's almost like this anti-mother thing going on, right? That, you know, the, his, his mother gave him life, right? But this wo- this mother woman in front of him is going to bring him death. There is a there does seem to be Rachel a, a deliberately constructed paradox of that kind, right? Um, Karita, I think you're 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 onto the thing here, right? Karita says, "Is child abandonment even a thing? If the child is not yours, how can you abandon them?" Exactly, Karita. I think that's the problem, right? He feels resentful against his mom for abandoning them. To which the response is what? If you're a good Anaresti, right? If you're a good Odonian, what would you say to Shevik? If Shevik comes to you and admits, I really, I really resent my mom's decision. Exactly. Lance and Yana and James... Stop egoizing. That's what you say. Mine mother, says Sarah Lagarde. Exactly. Exactly. Or Sarah, it's almost... It it is that, right? But it's almost like the projected reverse. Like, he's mad at her for not egoizing. Mad at her for not being more propertarian, 
right? Mad at her for not saying mine child about him, right? But he can't criticize her for that. He would be being a bad Odonian. I mean, it's, it's con- so his feelings here appear to be contrary to his principles, to all of the principles that he himself holds so strongly. There are not that many examples. Shevik seems to be legitimately a really good Odonian, right? I, I, there, there's, 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 there's evidence that Shevik believes as strongly, genuinely, spontaneously, wholeheartedly in the principles of Odonianism as, 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 as anybody else, as, as anybody else, right? Badap calls himself like the perfect Odonian, right? Um, and like, to some extent, yeah, but it's different, right? The quality of his Odonian is very different. There's a, there's a, there's a sort of a childlike nature of, of Shevik's Odonianism, right? Which it's really hard to see him lose, right? To see that kind of get tarnished, but it's one, it's, it's one of the most, it's one of the things that I find so painful about that moment back in chapter two, the moment when he gets kicked out of the, the speaking and, 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 and listening circle um, for trying to tell the joke about the rock not hitting the tree, right? Um, he, it's not that he was screwing up the principles. It's not only that the teacher or the leader or the facilitator or whatever the noun is, I forget, um, it's not only that that person is being hypocritical, which would be wildly hypocritical, but it's that he was sharing, right? That it, what was his apparent failure, or what it seemed to be his failure, was him in fact attempting to do, and quite spontaneously and wholeheartedly to do the things he was sharing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so K. Ben Abraham asks, is he afraid of his own desire for his mother? Like, don't bring that sunbeam close to me. I'll want it too much. Yeah, Kay thinking about the moment in the nursery. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, it seems pretty clear that there's this whole tangle of emotions, right? That are really tangled, right? Like they can't be pulled apart because they pull in opposite directions from each other, right? That is, his Odonian principles on the one hand and his sort of spontaneous human emotions on the other hand, right? Um, It's not really okay for him to blame his mom for abandoning them. That is, I mean, as, as you guys suggested back before, Karita, as you were suggesting... It's not really child abandonment is not really a thing. And even if it were a thing, Rulag wouldn't be guilty of it, right? What, what does she do? With her, she says the work comes first. Well, of course it does. There's nothing wrong with There's nothing un-Odonian about that, right? In fact, to say to somebody, no, you are my mom, you should put me before your work. That's not Odonian. Right? It's proprietarian. Like, you're mine, I won't share you with your work. 
which means I won't share you with you. I won't let you be you. I'm going to rest. You should restrain yourself to, 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 I mean, none of it makes sense from an Odonian standpoint. And yet he, he feels that James Stevens wonders is, is his death, the death of his beliefs. Um, yeah, James, to me, it feels like that the sort of, the fear, the the death language there, seems to me to be a uh, something like the death of I don't know if I'd say the death of his beliefs exactly, but maybe like sort of the death of an apparent or constructed identity, the death of his own self-image. Um, you know, is some kind of inner hypocrisy in himself going to be exposed. But hypocrisy doesn't feel like the right word. It's technically hi- hypocritical um, for him as an Odonian to be criticizing her for this. But um, but th- that doesn't feel like the right word to put on it, um, if you see what I mean by that. It's more, I don't know, internal. It's more sad than just hypocrisy. Um, Exactly, Brian. Odonianism rejects a duty to others, even a child, because it gives someone else power over you. Yes, exactly. And if you sacrifice yourself for someone else, right? I mean, if Rulag were have spontaneously to have said, I got this engineering posting, it's the work I love and that I, I feel that I should be doing... But you know what? No, I'm just going to stay. In other words, if she made the decision that the father made, right? You could easily make the argument that it was Shevik's father that made the Unodonian decision, right? To sacrifice his own life and opportunities in order to stay with his boy, right? His boy. I use the possessive pronoun in, you know, for, for a reason, right? It's possibly propertarian. At the very least, it's altruistic, right? I shall sacrifice myself for his sake. But that's bad in Odonian society, right? Um, anyway, okay, let's, let's keep going with this, uh, with this passage. He saw her loneliness. He saw her pain and resented it. It threatened him. It threatened his father's loyalty. That clear, instant, that clear constant love in which his life had taken root. What right had she, who had left Pilat in need, to come to come in her need to Pilat's son? He had nothing, nothing to give her, or anyone. It might have been better, he said, if you'd gone on thinking of me as a statistic too. Ah, she said, the soft, habitual, desolate response. She looked away from him. One of the questions I got by email, um, Carita today emailed me, uh, and one of her questions was, I had mentioned at the beginning, I had confessed a few classes ago that I don't enjoy reading this book. Um, that is, I, I admire the heck out of it. I, I It just blows my mind and blows me away, but it's not fun. I, I, I don't, I don't foresee myself revisiting it for pleasure frequently. There are a bunch of books that I reread for pleasure frequently, every year even. Um, but 
I, I don't see myself rereading this book with that kind of frequency. I wouldn't read it for fun. It's not fun. And her question was a very excellent question, Karita. Why is it not fun? Um, well, I don't have a full answer to that, Karita, but passages like this are one of my answers for this. Um, this scene is so painful. Every sentence in this passage that is on the screen right now is just as full of emotional weight and complexity as I have no simile for it. Um, it's very full <laughs> of emotional weight and complexity. I find myself burdened both with thought and feeling in reading this. It's incredibly powerful, but it's not fun. Um, yeah, Michael, it's incredibly sad. Um, he saw her pain and resented it. It threatened him. How does it threaten him? It threatens his father's loyalty, that clear, constant love in which his life had taken root. What right had she, who had left Pilat in need, to come in her need to Pilat's son? What right had she? Notice the hypocrisy in that sentence as well. What right had she? What do you mean right? Does she need permission? She's an Odonian, right? She should be able to do what she wants to do, right? She doesn't need a right to come. And is she even coming in her need? To Pilat's son, I don't think she's in need. She's offering to help him, right? But it's not at all clear that she's coming in need. He's imagining her coming in. I think he's being unfair to her here, right? Because he's angry still um, about what she did to his father. But notice the propertarian pronouns there. His father, right? Um, and notice how freely... The those possessive pronouns are used in the text. It threatened his father's loyalty, that constant love in which his life had taken root. What right had she, who had left Pilata need to come in her need? Um, Jennifer Minor asks if I don't think she came out of a need to stop her own guilt. Jennifer, it's not obvious to me that Rulang feels all that much guilt. Maybe, maybe some. I mean, she does seem to be hurt. That, ah, uh, is... I mean, it kind of seems to me that Rulag actually behaves quite well throughout this scene. Um, that she's... The weight of this scene, the tension in this scene, all comes from him, right? Um, she seems to come into this conversation and indeed the whole situation with a perfectly sort of balanced... Odonian point of view, right? Um, it's he who doesn't. Um, now, you're right, Jennifer. She comes out of a claim on him, on his work and her pride in it. Yes. I mean, she kind of questions that, right? She's like, is it, you know, is it wrong for me to feel pride in 
you know, the work that my son did, you know, she, she asks that, right. She sort of is, is wondering if that makes her propertarian. Um, but, uh, but again, so even if, if that is a transgression of Odonian principle, she's aware of that possibility. Right. Um, so yeah, even there, I don't see, I don't see her really, um, Yeah. Yeah. No, James, I don't think she's volunteering at the clinic. She just, she came to see him. She looked him up. Um, when she saw the book and was guessing it was probably him, she, she, she looked him up and found him there. Um, she was commenting about the understaffing of the clinic and you could say, James, in a sense that like she's, she's criticizing the clinic. This place is understaffed, right? And you might say, well, wouldn't the real Odonian response to that be like, let me help. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to just poke at Ruleg, in part because he seems eager to poke at her. Um, one more. He gave way to the fear that he had come with her. Sorry, he gave a, he gave way to the fear that had come with her. The sense of the breaking of promises, the incoherence of time. He broke. He began to cry, trying to hide his face in the shelter of his arms, for he could not find the strength to turn over. One of the old men, the sick old men, came and sat on the side of the cot and patted his shoulder. It's all right, brother. It'll be all right, little brother, he muttered. Shevik heard him and felt his touch, but took no comfort from it. Even from the brother, there is no comfort in the bad hour, in the dark, at the foot of the wall. By the way, the only thing better than Ursula Le Guin's first sentences are her last sentences. The last sentence of every chapter is awesome. I just go back and reread the last sentence of every chapter. Oh man, this is one of them. That's that's if I if I'm recalling correctly, that's a chapter ending sentence right there. Even from the brother, there is no comfort in the bad hour, in the dark, at the foot of the wall. The way that she ties into... Sorry, that, that exhalation is just like me being blown away by Le Guin's brilliance. Um, uh, oh, man. Um, oh, Jennifer, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that connection. But again, so many... There are always connections like this in this story. Jennifer's reminding us of his Shevik's description of his experience trying to comfort the burnt man, right? And if you touched him, his flesh came away on your hand, right? You couldn't touch him to comfort him. There was no comfort that you could give. Yes, Jennifer, it's exactly like that, right? Oh man, you're right. Shevik is the burned man here, right? Um, and you'll remember the context that came up is in the context of their discussion about pain and the importance of pain. And in particular, when they were talking about, have you ever seen anyone die, right? And Shevik's like, yeah, yeah, I saw somebody die once. And he tells that story about the man who was burned, right? So yes, Jennifer, um, the fear, right? Uh, he looks at it, not rebirth, but death. And the burned man. Oh, absolutely. That's gorgeous, Jennifer. Thank you for reminding me of that. I had totally forgotten about that. Um Let's go back to the beginning there. He gave way to the fear that had come with her, the sense of the breaking of promises, the incoherence of time. We were talking about the fear before. What exactly is it that he's afraid of? We get two things fed to us here. 
not exactly an explanation, right? Le Guin doesn't do anything so simple as to be like, here's what he, what he was really afraid of was, right? She doesn't spell it out. She just gives us two, she kind of drops two ideas next to the idea. We've got the idea of his fear, right? And she puts two things next to it. The sense of the breaking of promises, the incoherence of time. Which promises are broken? Whose promises and how broken? What is that referring to? Any ideas? It's another one of those hard questions. Many of you are very sensibly being like, I'm not coming near that one. Um... Veronica, you're right. Didn't he... Did he make a promise to his father not to blame his mother? They did have that conversation, didn't they? See, Veronica, I'd forgotten that too. This is what happens when I've only read the book twice. Um, yeah, you're right. And this is why, by the way, it's so obvious to me that it doesn't matter. This is a book I could reread 20 times and I'd still be finding completely new things. Um, oh my goodness, you're right. He broke his promise to his father not to resent his mother. Oh, man. You are so right. Yep. Well, that's one promise broken. Good. So, he is resentful of her for doing wrong to his father, right? He would. He feels like her... Her, what was it? Let me make sure. Let me, let me go back to the words of the text here. Her loneliness, her pain, right? Her pain threatens his father's loyalty, right? Um, but in holding on to his father's, in being true to his father's loyalty, in not betraying his father's loyalty, he's breaking his promise to his father. Oh, man. Horrible. Um, there's also, I think, we have to say that there's also, um, there's also, there's also issues of oh, just Odonianism, right? I mean, like the promise of like who he is and what he's supposed to be. I, he he knows he. But this is some of the most flagrantly unodonian behavior we see in Shevik. And notice it came right after he was feverish, right after he was sick for the first time in his life, right after he was confronted by the flagrantly unodonian behavior of Sabol for the first time in his life, right? Um, so that's why I can't help but think of all that stuff in the context of the breaking of promises here as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the incoherence of time. If you thought the breaking of promises question was hard. The incoherence of time. He gave way to the fear that had come with her. The sense of the breaking of promises. The incoherence of time. 
think I'll have to punt that one for now. It's one of those things that I, I can't think of how to talk about that from a page 124 perspective. <laughs> that is, I can think about that in the bigger picture of the time stuff and the narrative stuff in the book as a whole. Um, good. James says, when his mother says no, uh, uh, no fever, he is thrust back in his memories to his childhood. Yeah, that resonates, right? When she's a, she touches her forehead and says no fever, right? He does seem, James, there to be having a flash memory to his own childhood, right? The incoherence of time in the sense of, like, he is, when he's there with with Rulag, he's not relating to her like one adult to another. He's relating to her like the child again, right? So he, there's, there's this, oh, what's the word? I guess simultaneity, right, of his childhood experience and his adult experience. Um, yeah, yeah, Lance is just saying a similar, a similar, good. Cynthia was indeed using the word simultaneity, uh, thinking about that. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, there's this time sequence, right, of his life, but then there's this moment where he's lifted out of the pure sequential experience of life and experiences this simultaneous adult and child reaction. Yep, yep. Okay. But again, larger context here. One of the things, remember the previous two passages we, before we got to the the mother passages, right? Um, looking at Shevik and his isolation, self-exile, right? He is to Anaris what, Odon, what the Odonians were to Urus, right? The way in which he is separated, how that, how that works, him on the bench next to Odo, right? Um, we see how in this moment he's kind of confronting that one of the things that seems to be dying not just in his encounter with Rulag but in this whole scenario in this whole chapter um, you know the Sabol chapter here um, is that sort of naive Odonianism that he was voicing so vehemently in his argument with Tyran, right? That seems to be one of the things that's dying. Oh, but was it death or is it is it rebirth? Because that's the thing about rebirth, right? You, you do have to die first. Um, that even comes into the conversation with uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, in fact. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's keep going. Oh, wait, we didn't even get to the wall, right? In the dark at the foot of the wall. That dream that he had of that wall, right? That wall which picks up on the image from the very beginning, right? And so we have this, not just this distant, not well, not just this impersonal view of the wall as this symbol of the sort of boundary between societies, right? And this sort of social boundary or ideological boundary. Or, you know, it's easy to be thinking about the, 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 the social and ideological and cultural quarantine that the wall represents and everything and him wanting to push through that. And we see him, in fact, crossing the wall, right? And, and, uh, and, and being the one to transgress this and to, uh, to, to, to go across or through the wall and to, um, uh, and to break the quarantine, right? 
but um but we also see now it's very personal relevance to his own feelings of being cut off right both in his memory of being rejected or his feelings of being rejected by his mom and in his adult condemnation of those feelings of rejection right um because it's propertarian and yes brian in his dream his parents were the ones helping him go through the wall yes yes they were um yeah okay let's keep going He's having a hard time, right? This is on this is on Urus. His description of his experience after a while, you know, he really enjoyed Urus. He really enjoyed looking around. He's having a good time, but he's now having a hard time, right? There was something lacking in him. He thought, not in the place. He was not up to it. He was not strong enough to take what was so generously offered. He felt himself dry and arid like a desert plant in this beautiful oasis. Life on Anaris had sealed him, closed off his soul. The waters of life welled all around him, and yet he could not drink. He forced himself to work, but even there he found no certainty. He seemed to have lost the flair which, in his own estimation of himself, he counted as his main advantage over most other physicists. The sense for which he, the really important—the sense for which the— Sorry. The sense for where the really important problem lay— the clue that led inward to the center. Here he seemed to have no sense of direction. He worked at the light research laboratories, read a great deal, and wrote three papers that summer and autumn, a productive half-year by normal standards. But he knew that, in fact, he had done nothing real. This, of course, this comes in later. This is in Chapter 5, right? Um, he's been on, on Urus now for a while. What do you notice? What's so now we get this sort of new chapter of his isolation, right? Um, what do we see? If you don't know how to answer questions like that, when I say things like, what does this passage show us about his sense of isolation? Break it down. Always the first place to start. Tell me what bits, what phrases or sentences or parts of this passage seem important, seem relevant, seem to bear on the question. Even if you can't yet explain how they bear on it or what exactly we learn from it, tell me the bits that we should look at. That's always the first place to start. Okay, good. Cynthia is, is saying uh, he seems to be isolated now from his work. Great, Cynthia. We've seen him frustrated with his work before, right? When he even confesses to Badap uh, in chapter four that he was contemplating suicide, right? Um, we see him isolated with his work, frustrated with his work. But this is, this is, uh, no, wait, that's not in chapter four. It's in chapter six, isn't it? Yes, it is in chapter six. It hasn't happened yet. Never mind. Um, this is uh, this is his experience on Urus, which I gotta keep the sequences. 
in my mind. They get all simultaneous when I think back of them. Yes, okay, right. Chapter chapter two is the young Shevik chapter, which ends with the teenage debate. Chapter four is the one where he is uh, just starting to work with Sabo and and uh, has the academic in, uh, freedom issues. Okay. Um. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, yeah. The 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 waters of life all around him, but being unable to drink is a, is a very apt description of situational depression. Yeah, uh, it, it it is a it is a powerful. I mean, he is he is clearly becoming depressed, and uh, you know, Sarah Lagarde is looking at the simile of him being a desert plant, um, and you know, being out of place in the, you know, in the rich climate of Urus, he doesn't benefit by it. You know, right? Like if you, if you, uh, like when you, as I have done so many times before, overwater a plant, right? And just kill it, right? That seems to be almost, almost like what he's feeling, but it's not even that. It's not that he's being overwatered, right? He's not dying of, of surfeit. He is dying of, thirst in the middle of the of the um he's he's dying of thirst in the middle of this plenty in the middle of the water um yeah yeah um the thing yeah that that flare creator that he talks about that he just he defines his flare as a physicist that he seems to have lost as that sense for where the really important problem lay that's what gave him the edge. That's what has made him special as a physicist. Being able to tell, okay, this, this is where the real problem is. This is the crux of the issue, right? That's what he's lost, that insight into his work. And that the work that he's doing, he's producing stuff, but it's not real. Okay. So we see him being isolated, as Cynthia said at the beginning, isolated from his work, in a sense isolated from himself. He says that he's come to Urus in order to bring together two worlds again, right? Taking the next step in exile, which is the step back. But instead of bringing things together, he's separated from both of them. We saw that in that first passage. But as a consequence, he's also separated from himself, right? Um more. This is the chapter 6 passage. His efforts to break out of his essential seclusion were in fact a failure, and he knew it. He made no close friend. He copulated with a number of girls, but copulation was not the joy it ought to be. It was a mere relief of need, like evacuating, and he felt ashamed of it afterward, because it involved another person as an object— Masturbation was preferable, the, situ- the suitable course for a man like himself. Solitude was his fate. He was trapped in his heredity. She had said it. The work comes first. Rulag had said it calmly, stating fact, powerless to change it, to break out of her cold cell. So it was with him. His heart yearned towards them, the kindly young souls who called him brother. But he could not reach them, nor they him. He was born to be alone, a damned, cold intellectual, an egoist. I want to spend the rest of class taking this apart sentence by sentence. Um, 
Yeah, Veronica observes that Shevik is a very emotionally needy person who grew up in a world where attachments are discouraged. Uh, yes, yes. And Veronica, I think that's a legitimate observation, right? One of the things I think we can see, one of the things we seem to be encouraged to see, is that there are many things that are wonderful um, about the Odonian concept, right? About the Odonian philosophy. But there are also ways in which it seems to go not not to liberate sort of the human spirit, but to restrict the human spirit. Um, and that seems to be one of the things that was causing his fear when he met his mom. Um, remember the sort of dismissive and casual comment by one of the uh, one of the Arasti physicists. Um, we we understand, you know, uh, we're all human after all, right? That is his sort of skeptical statement that, yeah, you guys are Odonians and you have all these ideals and whatever, but like at bottom we're all we're all the same, right? And from Shevik, you know, sort of aligning ourselves with Shevik's point of view, I think we're we're sort of led to bristle at that. No, that's not fair, right? No, Odonian, they really are different on Anaris. And they are. Sort of. But not entirely. Um, there are many impulses that he just seems not at all to have. But, um, but it does seem that the Anaristi society, the Odonian principles even, do seem to strike against some really deep-seated important things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, trapped in his heredity, he's like Rulag, right? And maybe that's the other thing that he's afraid of. Remember, he he takes after Rulag physically. He looks like her, um, and he is conscious of that and uncomfortable about it. it makes him uncomfortable, right? Um, that maybe perhaps is another thing that he's afraid of? Possibly? Um, oh, so many things I want to talk about. Um, he was born to be alone, a damned, cold intellectual, an egoist. Born to be alone because of his heredity, right? That's who he is. He's a physicist. Isolation is the appropriate climate for a physicist to work in, right? An intellectual by heredity, right? A cold intellectual by heredity? Cold in what sense? Unemotional? Not passionate? Cold in that sense? He was born to be cold? Is he cold? I'm convinced he actually is cold, right? And what about damned? What on earth do we do with damned? I don't even have that word in Pravik. Um, what does that even mean when he calls himself a damned cold intellectual? And an egoist? So that's what? A synonym? For 
damned cold intellectual? Are all intellectuals egoists, then? Yeah, Karita, he does seem to be describing himself as unfit for relationships of any kind. At least that certainly does seem to be uh, how he how he feels. Um, yeah. Um, Cynthia says you do have to be an egoist to think you can solve intellectual problems that have stumped the best minds for centuries. Cynthia, I mean, think about the, like, the conflicts with Sobel, right? I mean, Sobel tells him Sabo is the authority. Sabo is the established guy. Sabo is the, 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 you know, trusted physicist, right? Um, and Sabo's telling him, stop bothering with that simultaneity stuff, right? For him to say, no, I'm going to do it anyway, could say, yeah, he's an egoist, right? You, I mean, I, I can see that argument, um, but again, doesn't that seem to be sort of a fundamental tension in uh, the whole Odonian principle? On the one hand, you're supposed to be living for others, but you can't be altruistic, right? You're free to follow your own choices and your own desires at any kind, but you can't egoize, right? So if Shevik objects, if like baby Shevik or, you know, Junior Shevik objects to his mom abandoning him and going off to follow her work, you would say to Shevik, stop egoizing, right? But if, couldn't you also say to Rulag, who says, my work is more important than my family, stop egoizing? Your son needs you, right? I mean... I think this is a fundamental paradox in the whole Odonian culture. I think it's one of the things that we could... It's one of the reasons, um, you know, when we begin to see the cracks in the Odonian society, th those are some of the things that I think really lead to it. There there are some fundamental paradoxes implicit in the way that they look at things, right? Um, you're right, Nancy. You could say her work benefits society. Her son is only one person. Sure, absolutely. You know, you can you can make that argument. But um, my point is, you can make the counter argument, right? It's not um, just as we were talking about. Before, I mean, and remember, this is one of our first impressions of NRST society when we in chapter two with the with baby Shevik in the nursery, right? Yes, Shevik screaming, "Mine son, mine son!" That's egoizing. He's being a proprietarian about the sun. But of course, as we were pointing out, the other kid pushing him out of the sun was egoizing too, right? And the nurse who is taking him away and not reproving the other kid, right? There's inconsistency and conflicts everywhere, right? And I think this, again, this is some of the, uh, some of the, the, the pressure under which it seems to me that the Odonian society is kind of cracking um, at places, and those places become uh, become more and more, more and more clear. Um, and yes, <clears throat> Jennifer, good point. To in a sense, to be an intellectual is to be an egoist, in the sense that intellectuals don't really contribute to the social well-being in a direct way most of the time. Exactly, Jennifer. Just as Shevik sometimes has those impulses, he tells. 
bedapt that he's thinking of throwing, you know, tossing off physics and and going to volunteer for manual labor somewhere, right? Because if he's out there farming or 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 you know digging or do, he's contributing in a concrete way to the community, right? What's he doing here, sitting alone in his own room, right? Eating two desserts a day and uh, and looking out the window, right? Um, which some people might misunderstand, right? They wouldn't understand that he's working when he's looking out the window, right? But but again, that so yeah, there is something, in a sense, sort of intrinsically egotistical in that kind of work, you could say. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, and then Kay, exactly, Kay pointing out that, and this, you know, Kay, Kay, you're right to remind us of the that tension we were looking at last time, right? How the Odonian principles work against both the plagiarist, right? Against Sabal. Sabal is being propertarian, flagrantly propertarian. But if Shevik objects to his plagiarism, Shevik is being propertarian, right? Um, uh, if he says, no, mine ideas, he's being propertarian, right? So once again, we can see this sort of um, I'm not sure if it's like this or if it's like this, right? But anyway, it's it's uh, it's this sort of constant tension, this constant paradox. This is his uh, when he's over at Oye's house, one of the uh, one of the Arasti physicists. Does everybody work so hard then? Oye's wife asked. What happens to a man who just won't cooperate? Well, he moves on. The others get tired of him, you know. They make fun of him, or they get rough with him, beat him up. In a small community, they might agree to take his name off the meals listing, so he has to cook and eat all by himself. That is humiliating. So he moves on, and stays in another place for a while, and then maybe moves on again. Some do it all their lives. Nuknibi, they're called. I am a sort of nuknib. I am here evading my own work posting. I moved far farther than most. Shevik spoke tranquilly. If there was bitterness in his voice, it was not discernible to the children, nor explicable to the adults. But a little silence followed on his words. <laughs> Kay says, I want a dispossessed t-shirt from Signum that says, Mine ideas! Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um... Good. Yeah, and of course, by the way, we haven't even commented on the fact. Isn't it really kind of delightful, the misuse of the of the possessive pronoun? Right, mine son. Um, it's not just that he's an infant; it's that he's not used to. People haven't been modeling the correct use of the possessive pronoun to him. Right, so he doesn't know how to use it. Uh, I, I I love that element of it. Um, What do you notice here? Yes, James. In a way, Shevik is the man that won't cooperate. Um, the way that he turns this around on himself, right? Um, yeah, Nancy, I don't think his words are literally true. Like, he's not literally evading a work posting. Um, 
I mean, he is evading a work posting. He was given, he was not, he was not assigned by the PDC to come to Urus, right? So that means he was assigned to work somewhere else and he's not doing that work right now. So, so maybe literally it is true, but it's, it's clearly, it's not the main issue, right? Um, in a much bigger sense, he is pursuing his work, right? His chosen work as, cause the work comes first, right? Wait, oh shoot. His work comes first. That's why he's in Urus. Right? Meeting with the other physicists. So, because the work came first, he left Anaris and his wife and daughter. Right? Oh dear. He is just like Rulag, isn't he? Sorry. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, you said that, Lance? Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, no, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, Nancy says, but he does seem to feel like he's avoiding something he ought to be doing. So what is that? Great question. Um, In what sense... Let me... Nancy, let me turn your question around and ask it in a different way. In what sense is Shevik a Nuknib? This person who moves on, right? Um, I don't know. Kay Ben Abraham is wondering if there's any linguistic connection or analog to the Hebrew word Nudnik. Um, uh, which means an irritating, problematic person, uh, the grain of sand in the oyster. Um, and you're right, that is exactly what Shevik is in his society, and that does seem to be the thing that he's emphasizing when he calls himself a sort of nuknib. Um, he moved farther than most, right? Um, if you're a nuknib, if you're rejected by your society, if by the if they don't, if they won't, if they're they're tired of your act, right? Um, and uh, he's, you know, and they basically force you out. You move on to somewhere else, right? Um, he has that in common with the nuknib, with the nuknibi, right? Um, Yeah, of course, as Cynthia reminds us, they were throwing rocks at him when he left to think about, you know, uh, get rough with him, beat him up, right? That happens, right? Um, I moved farther than most. Going back to that first slide about him being an exile, right? An exile from his own society. Um, you could say, in a sense, he's not, he's not just like a nuknib, he's the ultimate nuknib, right? He's the one who is... Mo- in 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 a similar way to how in her society Odo was the ultimate nuknib, right? Um, they imprisoned her, beat her. They tra- they they didn't want anything to do with her, right? And ultimately, her followers they ejected them from the society, right? They exiled them. Um, and again, he's uh, he's following in that path, right? He is like Odo. But there's this sense of 
self-condemnation here, right? He doesn't see himself as an adventurer. He doesn't see himself... Remember his, his comment about uh, adventurers, the difference between an, ex, an adventurer and an exile, right? Adventurers still communicate with home, right? Um, those who go off and cut themselves off are exiles. They're not adventurers, right? They're not explorers. Um, he's an explorer, not an exile, right? Well, no, he does feel like an exile, like he's been kicked out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, he's like Odo. Let's talk about Takver. Shevik saw in the tension of her movements that she was trying with all her strength to contain or restrain a storm of emotion so that she could speak. When she did, it was in a low voice and a little roughly. I need the bond, she said, the real one, body and mind and all the years of life, nothing else, nothing less. She glanced up at him with defiance. It might have been hatred. Joy was rising mysteriously in him, like the sound and smell of the running water rising through the darkness. He had a feeling of unlimitedness, of clarity, total clarity, as if he had been set free. Behind Takfer's head, the sky was brightening with moonrise. The far peaks floated clear and silver. Yes, that's it, he said, without self-consciousness, without any sense of talking to someone else. He said what came into his head, meditatively. I never saw it. Uh, interesting, uh, Noam uh, uh, Noam Weiss, which uh, Kay, he's, uh, who's from Israel, said the closest term in English to nudnik, uh, the the Hebrew word you were you were referring to, Kay, uh, is the internet troll. That's uh, that's uh, that's cool, Noam. That's a really interesting idea, and of course it's a it's a different kind of irritant, right? Than than the nuknib seems to be, but yeah. Um, Notice the tenor of her emotion here, not just the substance of it, but the 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 tone. The tension in her, right? The low, rough voice, um, the defiance that might have been hatred with which she says it. Defiance. She says defiantly, I need the bond, the real one, body and mind and all the years of life. Nothing else, nothing less. Why is she, why is she saying that defiantly? And she looks at, up at him with defiance that might be hatred. What do you think she's afraid he's going to say? she afraid he's going to say? Stop egoizing, Brian. You got it. Exactly. Stop egoizing. Right? Because what she has just said is un-Odonian, James. Exactly as you say. As Michael says, it's propertarian to have that kind of, that kind of bond. Um, yeah, K. Ben Abraham translates it as, I dare you to deny me on odonian principles this absolute... This absolute human need of mine. 
Yes. Yes. Remember, marriage is a controversial issue on Anaris, right? Odo didn't believe in marriage, though she was married, <laughs> right? But she didn't believe in marriage. Um, she would have done without marriage, but it was it's one of those things that we learn very early on is kind of a crack. I don't want to call it a crack. That's not exactly right, but a... Well, okay, no, fine, I'll call it a crack. It's a crack in the Odonian system, right? That is, it's we see this recognition from early on. The purest Odonian principle would say lifetime partnerships are propertarian. Nobody should be involved in a lifetime partnership. Um, it is intrinsically egoizing, or at the best, altruistic, which is also bad, um, to be in a lifetime partnership. And yet... Odo failed. It's the one thing that we see. I can't think of a second example um, in NRST culture of a place where human impulse was contrary to Odonian principle and human impulse won, like categorically, where the whole structure of society compromised on that point. See what I mean? I mean, there are other places where we can see people being inconsistent. Other people where we can, other places where we can see people not, in fact, following the true spirit of Odonianism. But that's one of the only places where, like, in the actual terms of the culture itself, they accept this un, this explicitly unodonian principle of marriage of partnership. Um. So what we see in her is defiance. She is defying the society. In other words, right in that moment, when she says this, the storm of emotion that she's feeling, where is Takver? At the foot of the wall, right? She's at the foot of the wall, and she's trying to push through. She's trying to reach across the wall. And he sees it. I, I never saw it. That's it. Um, he recognizes that this this is what he this is what he needed, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Kay says in this moment they have broken out of the wall around their world. He feels unlimitedness, as if he had been set free. Yeah, really important quotes there, Kay. Um, They are deciding together to seize the sunbeam anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, uh, of course, you notice what's happening at this moment. Moonrise is happening. That is, Urus is rising in the background as they have this moment. I think, non-coincidentally, right? Um, More moonlight. Um, it's nothing to do with eternity, said Shevik, grinning, a thin, shaggy man of silver and shadow. All you have to do to see life whole is to see it as mortal. I'll die. You'll die. How could we eat? How could we love each other otherwise? The sun's going to burn out. What else keeps it shining? Ah, your talk, your damned philosophy. Talk? It's not talk. It's not reason. It's hands touch. I touch the wholeness. I hold it. Which is moonlight. 
which is Takver. How shall I fear death? When I hold it, when I hold in my hands the light. Don't be propertarian, Takver muttered. Dear heart, don't cry. I'm not crying. You are. Those are your tears. I'm cold. The moonlight's cold. Lie down. A great shiver went through his body as she took him in her arms. I'm afraid, Takfer, he whispered. Brother, dear soul, hush. They slept in each other's arms that night, many nights. Sarah Lagarde is recalling Tolkien's poem, The Shadow Bride. Golly, Sarah, that sounds like an awesome conference paper. Just saying. Just saying. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't even know what to say about this. Um, this is one of those kinds of... This is one of those passages where... As a literature teacher, I'm usually resistant. Um, ever since I came myself to love reading books, not just love reading them, but to love thinking about them, which is not quite the same. Um, ever since I had my sort of epiphany in 11th grade English class about how you could come, like the the worlds that can be opened when you do close reading and look at the books and how much more there is to see, I always hated the... Uh, the inappropriate use of the word dissection, the dissection imagery, like, oh, don't dissect the book. That destroys it. It's not that I can't understand what people mean, because goodness knows we've all had the experience of hearing somebody do to a book what feels like a dissection, right? When you're not getting to know the thing better, you're vivisecting it, right? And that's awful, and it's a terrible experience to go through that, and I get that. Um... But I've always felt very strongly. I remember, like, one of the, like, within the first, like, couple months of after I started my podcast, I was doing my Hobbit series when that was the only thing I'd ever done was my Hobbit series. And, you know, people were saying, like, a bunch of people were saying, like, on my social media outlets and stuff, I think just my Facebook, because I didn't even have Twitter then, um, uh, they were saying, Oh, like, uh, you know, I can't wait till you do the Lord of the Rings. But then some people were responding and saying, I'm not going to listen when you do the Lord of the Rings because it's I, it means too much to me. I, I don't think I could bear to hear it analyzed. And like, I, I, on the one hand, I totally I totally get it. Um, but on the other hand, I think that they're so missing out. Right. I mean, it's like it's. Yes, it it can be done really badly, and and you can do violence to a a text that can be really painful to watch when the text is really meaningful to you. Um, but I always find that any good book, you just 
you come to appreciate and marvel at and love so much more when you really look at it and try to see not just to kind of have the experience of having it do something to you, but to really dig in and think about what is it doing? How is it creating this? You know, what, what is, what is, what, you know, what are like the component parts and how does it work? Um, this is one of those passages that I feel like practically just defeats me. You know, I don't even know what she's bringing together is so powerful here. Trying to sort of follow the threads as they are woven together here. Um, there's no way I can, um, I mean, and I think many of you have, been with me when we've come to parts like to parts in the Lord of the Rings, um, like parts of the Battle of Pelennor Field that I like, I can kind of, it's not that I can't talk about them. I can talk about them, but I don't feel that I can add to it. You know, that's one of the things that I love. I, you know, I love sort of looking at passages of, of texts, you know, looking at, you know, doing close reading of texts and feel like, you know, when you stop and really look at this closely and it's just, it, it becomes so much more. And I, and but there are some passages where I feel like I don't have anything to add. You know, I don't know that I can amplify this, or if I try, it's going to blow out my speakers. You know, um, but uh, anyway, this is kind of one of those. I don't know that I can uh, sort all this stuff out, but um, let's try a little bit anyway, um, and then maybe you guys can kind of. Again, I'm not going to be able to assemble it. I don't think, but if we can kind of identify some bits. Notice her resistance to his, the things, two things he objects to, his talk and his damned philosophy, right? He's talking about time. She just mentioned eternity, and he's saying, no, 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 it's not about eternity, right? Um, uh, so she she objects to talk and philosophy, and he says, it's not talk, it's not reason, it's touch, Right? Um, I touch the wholeness. I hold it. Right? They're lying together out under the moon, right? Which, of course, is Urus. Um, I touch the wholeness. I hold it. Remember him wanting to have the sun, right? Which is moonlight and which is Takfair? How shall I fear death? One of the things that Le Guin does so well is the mere juxtaposition of ideas. She is so good at not saying too much. I, one of the reasons that I have never succeeded, occasionally someone will ask me, have you ever tried to write, like to write a story, to write a novel? Um, yes, a lot. I thought it was going to be, I was like in high school, I was totally going to be a, a writer. That was, that was me. That was my identity. Um, I learned that I'm better at teaching than at writing, um, which was liberating because I found that my writing kind of sucked, but th- that's the way it sucked. The way it's, I was, I sucked at not saying things. I, I like, I would always spell things out because it's like, it's like the teacher thing, right? I would, um, I wasn't quite as bad as like Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, 
uh, I just I reread it was several years ago now, maybe four years ago. I reread Scarlet Letter, which I hadn't read since high school, which I found hilarious. And I'm like, well, of course, now I see why they teach this book in high school all the time, because like every single freaking time Hawthorne puts forward like a symbol or an, or, a, or an image. I'm listening to the audiobook, Right. And uh, and like we, we get to the image and I'm like. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. I see what he's trying to get at is, and then as the thought is formulating in my head, in the next sentence, Hawthorne is like, "It is almost as if wham wham," and he spells it out explicitly. And I'd be, I'd be just as bad. I hope not quite as clumsy as uh, as Hawthorne in that book. But um, uh, no, I wouldn't veto the Scarlet Letter, Jennifer. You want to do the Scarlet Letter? Let's do the Scarlet Letter. Why not? Um, but uh, uh, but I just find I just find it really funny. It's like it's like a book that that like interprets he just can't resist i can't resist he's as bad as dickens uh dickens is 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 i think funnier and, and a little bit more uh whimsical and uh even um kind of self-aware in that way uh but anyway uh, uh Le Guin is awesome at just putting two things side by side right uh, and just you know I, I like those those questions right which is moonlight? Which is talk there? How shall I fear death? And it's like, it's like, this is barely even prose anymore. This is, it's, I mean, it's like poetry with the way in which it just sort of forces these ideas together and you, um, uh, you have to, uh, um, just kind of do it yourself, you know, to sort of find these connections. Um, she scolds him for being propertarian, for wanting to hold the light in his hands, the light which is her. This, of course, you know, which is moonlight, which is talk fair, right? Um, though, of course, the moonlight is the light of Urus, where he is going to go and leave her behind. But anyway, um, he holds the light in his hands like he wanted to have the sun when he was a baby. Um, and she's accusing him of being propertarian, right? Um, but remember, that's what she seemed to be afraid that she was going to get accused. So, like, possessing the moonlight, that's propertarian. Holding Takver is not propertarian. That's okay, right? That's their... Um, that's their... Uh, um, that's their partnership, their connection, their freedom, right? Um... James points out that he calls her dear heart and she calls him dear soul. Uh, that is a really interesting observation, James. I'd need to think about that a lot more to think about the significance of that, but that does seem to me significant. Um, Kay asks, <clears throat> is this state of mind the opposite of that he was in when he was in terror of the mother as though she was death? Well, Kay, we can't not think of it. Right. Um, especially because of the parallel. This is the end of chapter six. The mother scene was the end of chapter four. Right. Four. Yeah. Four. Yes. Um, was the end of chapter four. Um, and so, yeah, the the he drew back from her in fear as the fear of death. And now here at the end of chapter six, he's saying, how shall I fear death? Right. He is holding the moonlight, which is talk fair. In this moment, talk uh, with Takver, 
Shevik seems to have found peace. We'll never see Shevik more peaceful than this, right? Um, and exactly what he seems to have made peace with, in a sense, is the propertarianism, right? That is um, that 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 conflict we were talking about before that was so apparent with the mother, right? Between his Odonian principles and his unodonian emotions, right? Um, that defiance with which Tokfer reaches out to him, in which he accepts and embraces and, and acknowledges as the freedom that he needed, this was the thing that was holding him back. This is why he was struggling. This is why he was isolated, right? Um, now he rebels. It's a like a revolution again, in a sense, against Odonianism. Um, to say we don't care if it's propertarian, we are going to hold each other, right? Um, and as a result, he can now hold the light, the moonlight, the light cupped in his hands, like the light in the bowl that was the surface of Urus as he's um, taking off in the in in the, in, the, in the spaceship, right? The mindful, the name of his spaceship. Uh, talk and damn philosophy. Um, now he can touch the wholeness, not just the parts, right? Not those conflicting parts. He can touch the wholeness. How shall I fear death? And Kay, that's what your suggestion is that seems to me the best way to understand this in relationship back to um, to the the other stuff, right? In relation back to the mother stuff and his fear of death. That fear of death, which was tied up, which seemed to be all tied up in his guilt, right? And that the conflicted status of his feelings there. Um, which one of them do I think is actually crying? Um, I think it's likely that they're both crying but I think the beautiful thing is that we have no idea who's crying. Even they can't tell which one of them is crying. Forget why they're crying, right? That's usually the question. Why are you crying, right? We can't even get there, right? <laughs> like, first we have to answer the question, who's crying? And we don't even know that, right? Um, and I think, again, the the way in which the the just the... the you know, which is moonlight, which is talk fair, right? Touching the wholeness, the way in which these, this, the emotional reaction of Shevik's tears seems to touch the wholeness, right? Sorrow and happiness, grief and joy. Um, the pure mutuality of that, where they, like, he can't even tell who it is that's crying. Nancy Fosberg. Awesome. One of the best comments of the night. No need to be propertarian with the tears. They can share those. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, How shall I fear death? He says. I am afraid, Takfer, he whispered. Brother. Dear soul, hush. What's he afraid of? Not death? Um, 
James Stevens reminds us that in the mother scene, he hides his face when he's crying. Yeah, think of that image, James, right? Of him crying and hiding his face in his arms and turning himself away and the old men patting him, right? And saying, brother, brother, right? Um, And now here is he being taken in Takver's arms, right? Um, And the two of them sharing their tears and her again saying, brother, hush. And this time she's able to reach him, you know, like without his burned flesh sloughing off as in that parallel we were looking at before. Um, Cynthia asks, is he afraid of losing the moonlight or losing Takfair? I don't know. Um, I have no idea what he's afraid of. I mean, all I can think in the larger context of the... Because, I mean, it seems paradoxical, right? That he would be afraid in this mo- this greatest moment of wholeness. He's touching the wholeness, right? Um, this is as fulfilled, satisfied, happy as Shevik will ever be. And he's afraid in that moment. Is he afraid of losing it? I don't... Afraid it won't last, possibly, Veronica? I, um... Yeah, Kay, that's the direction I'm thinking, too. Kay says, the great shiver, uh, described there in that, uh, in this paragraph here, the great shiver speaks of premonitions. Uh, the superstitious, someone walked over my grave thing. Uh, so a premonition that he will lose the wholeness. There's going to come a day when he's going to have to choose between the moonlight and Takfair, when he won't be touching the wholeness, right? When, in order to, if he chooses the moon, right, when he goes to Urus, he's going to have to leave Takfair behind. He's going to be self-exiled. He's going to have to take the second step away, which is the step back. I think he already has that premonition. That's the premonition that I see, Kay. Um, Not that he's thinking about it in these terms, not that he's thinking about, like, there will come a day when I will have to choose between Moonlight and Talkfair, right? It's, that's, 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 that's sort of the image, to kind of give the image to us. I don't think he's thinking of... It's not talk, it's not reason, right? That's not where he's going. Um, his fear isn't a fear based on philosophy. Um, good, yeah, James says, like, this, uh, uh, the, like like the sun that will someday burn out. Yes, but I think it's more specific than that. I think, because it's not just death. I th- I don't think he's going back and saying, okay, actually, I do fear death, right? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's what's happening. I think this is something different. Um, yeah, I think it is something different. Uh... uh Yeah, I think it's the premonition. There's this other work he has to do, right? The work for Anaris, the work for Odonianism, that this step of exile, this breaking through the wall, 
Um, and he's going to have to leave Takfair behind. It, it's not. It's that step is not a fulfillment of his togetherness with Takfair. It's stepping back into isolation. In the passage where the two of them decide to come together in a partnership, it's like the wall is between them, right? And Takfair is reaching through the wall. But in the end, or no, wait, I mean in the beginning of the book, breaking through the wall means isolation. It means separating yourself from everybody. Um, and is there joy there? That one dream that he had where he did go through the wall, there was joy. Um, he experienced great joy in very similar terms to how Takfair experienced joy when she comes together with him, or, you know, when she proposes partnership. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's... Maybe there is joy on the other side, but he has to go into isolation. He has to be in exile. <clears throat> he has to, what, confess himself a, a nuknib um, and move along, leave the society in order to save it. What exactly is he doing? Why is he doing it? More on that later. Um, uh, oof, man. Whew, heavy stuff. Okay, we only got like halfway through my slides and we didn't talk about most of the questions that I got, um, but we'll do what we got to do. Um, uh, the next set of passages I had for today was talking about um, more of Badap stuff. I want to go back and look at this sort of... the um, uh, Sabo gives us our first sense of like the kind of dark underbelly of NRST society. I want to see how that sort of moves and develops and the terms on which that moves and develops uh, as we as we move forward. But, um, but I feel good about what we got through tonight. I'm not going to apologize. Thanks, everybody, for joining us <clears throat> next week. And poor, poor Tyrion. Yeah, we'll talk about that next time. Um, uh, so next time, carry on reading. We will start with the, uh, with the Badap stuff, as I just said, and then we'll move on. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely be doing some passages from chapter seven and eight, uh, next time as well. So I look forward to that. Um, uh, yeah. And don't forget about the webathon, probably Saturday, the 29th, maybe still Sunday, the 30th, but anyway, that weekend, and I'll confirm it soon. Uh, don't forget to put that on your calendar. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks everybody. Good night. I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.